Hello, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ. I want to welcome you, and I want to thank you for joining us as we open God's Word and study and learn how to glorify Him. The Bible is filled with numerous lessons and stories that help us serve and glorify God. Some of those stories talk about what I believe to be really surprising conversions. And I'm not sure that there's any conversion that's more surprising to me than the one found in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria with Simon the sorcerer. What can we learn from him? Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8 and learn from Simon the sorcerer. When you think about the people that we see converted in the New Testament, who are some of the more surprising converts that you've read about? If we were going to make a list, we'd probably think of Paul. We might put those folks in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, the adulterers and idolaters and homosexuals and effeminate. We might think about priests and Pharisees that we read about being converted to the gospel, converted to Jesus. I don't think we could complete that list, however, without looking at the fellow that we see mentioned in Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer. Here is a man who had great influence in the community, who had been able to dupe the people into believing that he was somehow some great man who demonstrated and displayed the power of God. And yet, when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into his community, his followers are all taken from him, and they follow after Philip and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But instead of setting up shop against them and arguing, Simon the sorcerer comes along with them and is also converted. Read with me in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. In Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. <coughs> Excuse me. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could attain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. 
And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. Simon the sorcerer. There are so many lessons that we can learn from this one man and what happened regarding his conversion to Christ and what happened as he was a babe in the faith. We're going to be taking a look at this this morning and we're also going to look at it a little bit tonight as well. The many things that we can learn from Simon the sorcerer. Before we start looking at those, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we are in awe of you. We're so thankful that your son died to forgive folks like Simon the sorcerer and folks like us. We are amazed that you have loved us that much, considering how much sin we have committed. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our sins and help us to turn away from them. Help us not to rest apathetically in our sin, resting on the grace, thinking that we can do what we want, but rather, Father, that we will love you because you have loved us and that we'll serve you and honor and glorify you because you have lifted us up. We praise you, Father, and we thank you because you have given us so much guidance through your word that we can understand how to serve you. We pray that you would give us the strength to study, to learn, to live according to what you have recorded. Father, we praise you, and we love you, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. As we consider Simon the Sorcerer, this morning's lessons are are going to deal more with the idea of error and doctrine that's prevalent in our world. Tonight we're going to deal more with some issues of Christian living that we can learn from Simon the Sorcerer. But the very first thing that I think we learn from Simon the Sorcerer is that the modern Pentecostal proofs are nothing new. When we take a look at the televangelists and the Benny Hens and the folks along those lines and see the things that they are doing on, in television and the supposed miracles that they are offering, demonstrating themselves to be the great power of God, and then we come back to Acts chapter 8 and we take a look at Simon the Sorcerer, we'll find out that the very things that are offered up today for people trying to demonstrate that they're from God is exactly what we see from Simon the Sorcerer. It's nothing new, and it's not anything that we should be shocked at or even giving heed to. In fact, when we take a look at Simon the Sorcerer, we find that he had a three-pronged attack. Tricks, talk, and testimony. Here in Acts chapter 8, we find that it says in verse 9, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic. There in verse 11, it said he had astonished them with his magic arts. The point here is not that he had some type of miraculous power, but rather that he had been one who had some type of tricks up his sleeve. Now, no doubt some of those tricks might be elaborate. No doubt there might have been some amazing things. But he's more along the lines of a David Copperfield. Somebody who's figured out the way to do people. The, 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 The hand is faster than the eye kind of tricks. Those kind of things as he deluded them with his magic arts. And that's exactly what we see today with the trickery of men as they, as they talk about the amazing things that they've done. And of course, I could stand up here for a long time and tell you about folks that had been proven to be tricksters and some of the things that they would do. Has anybody ever watched on TV and seen the leg that, you know, one person had a, that one leg was shorter than the other? And they, they, they lengthen the leg right there before the camera. You ever seen that? You know, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, it's, you know there, there are just ways that you can do that. But a lot of times what they would do is they would just hold the arm and they'd pull the shoe out a little bit. And lo and behold, there it is. See, and now everybody looks at it thinking the leg has grown. So, so many types of tricks that can be used to try to do people. And that's exactly what Simon was doing and that's what folks do today. We've got talk there in Acts chapter 8. As Simon talked about himself, He said in verse 9, he was claiming to be someone great. 
And that's exactly what many of the folks today are doing. As you go to their assemblies, as you watch them on television, as you attend their crusades, a lot of what they'll talk about, even though it's kind of like they'll try to offer it up as, as, oh, this is Jesus, this is what Jesus is doing. A lot of the talk is about me and about how great I am and, and what I've done. Uh, I've won, I didn't actually attend this service, but a friend of mine attended it. And the guy, as he was talking about his ability to heal folks, he, he talked about, you know, all your diseases are caused because you're sinners. And if you quit sinning like me, you wouldn't have to worry about getting sick anymore. So here I am, someone great. Someone great. One of the things, this was one, I went to a Benny Hinn crusade one time, and it, and it really, it absolutely amazed me. Uh, he, boy, he, I tell you, when you go to one of his crusades, he tries to keep a tight rein on what's going on around him. He doesn't want people just shouting and jumping around, and he, he doesn't want any of that. And one, at one point, somebody in the middle of the crusade just started howl, hollering, praise the Lord, or something like that, and they were just going off, and he said, hey, stop that, this is my show. I mean, this is Jesus' show. You see the, the idea there thinking about themselves, claiming to be someone great. That's the kind of thing that's going on today. And then the third thing, of course, is you've got the testimony. There in verse 10, they offer the smallest, the greatest, we're giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And he had folks that were testifying to him. And that's another thing that you see. If you ever watch these shows or go to any of these crusades, one of the big parts is always the testimonial. Somebody from another city who has come along to be a part of this crusade in order to say what this man did for me back over in some other city. A lot of times the folks in the audience have no idea who they are. They've never seen them. But you, you watch the televangelists. You've seen it. As they always have their little cutaway to the person that's saying, oh, I remember I was watching his show one time and he said, you know, if your back is hurting, touch the screen. And I did and my, the, my back pain went away. Anybody ever seen anything like that? All those kinds of things take place. What do they have? They have tricks, they have talk, they have testimony, and that's it. That's all they have, and that is exactly what folks are using today. But when you actually try to find and ask for a true demonstration of power, it's just not there. They can't do it. They won't do it because they can't. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul was talking about the fact that he was going to come meet the Corinthians again. He said, now some, and this is 1 Corinthians 4, verse 18, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Paul said, I'm going to come and I'm not just going to be satisfied with words. We're not going to be satisfied with tricks, talk, and testimony. We want to see the power. We want to see it displayed. Paul said, I'm going to be coming with power. And that's exactly the issue that we're dealing with, with all these modern tricksters that claim to have these gifts, that claim to be the great power of God. Let's actually see it. Let's see it demonstrated. Let's see it demonstrated outside of the crusade without all of the, the, the hype and the music and all that. Let's, just, let's go to the hospital and let's clear out the cancer floor if we have that type of power. That's what we need to see. And yet, of course, nobody is doing that. The, these proofs that we see from folks today, they're nothing new. They were happening all the way back in the first century. And they're not anything that we should be giving heed to. But that leads to the second point, And that is that the real power of God, real, real miracles, outshine the trickery and the fakery of men. There in Acts chapter 8. 
In verse 10, it says that the, all of them, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to Simon with his tricks, with his magic arts. <clears throat> Excuse me, but when Philip came into the town, everything changed. In verse 6, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. When the real power of God came into the city, they could tell the difference. And that's the way it has always been. The power of God has always outstripped and outshined the trickery and the fakery of men. It happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 41 and 42 when Pharaoh had a dream and none of his court viziers and wise men could interpret it, but who could? Joseph, the child of God. In Exodus, when Moses comes as the hand of God to the Pharaoh and they start the, the plagues, the court wise men and viziers and wizards tried to keep up with Moses and they couldn't. In Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar received a dream, he wanted his wise men to tell him what the dream was and interpret it, but they couldn't. But Daniel, the faithful child of God, he could do it. In Acts chapter 13 in the New Covenant, when Paul travels and he comes to Paphos and there's Sergius Paulus and he has his court magician Elamus and they go head to head with one another. Paul outshone him and outstripped him. Why? Because the power of God, the true miraculous power that God can cause to take place outshines head and shoulders above the fakery and the tricks of men. And there's a reason why it's important for us to notice this. As we talk with folks in our society today who are part of churches that claim to have the miraculous power of God, that claim to have the miraculous gifts that God worked through the Holy Spirit for a period of time, we're going to notice something about them. There are all kinds of churches that claim to have miracles. The Roman Catholic Church, the Mormons, the Metropolitan Community Church, the Assembly of God, the United Pentecostal Church, and on and on and on we could go with all of these churches that claim to be performing these works today. But they all teach different things. They teach different things about the nature of God. They teach different things about salvation. They teach different things about worship. They teach different things about living as a Christian. And yet they all claim to have the very same kind of works. You remember what it says in Hebrews chapter 2? In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 2, the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received the just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. What was the purpose of the miraculous gifts? Was it just to have power? Was it to impress people? Of course not. The reason God gave miraculous gifts to people was in order to testify that what they were teaching was the truth. So let's back up now. Think about these churches today. All these churches that are teaching all these different things and yet they all have the very same kinds of miracles and signs. How can that be? How can it be that the churches that's 
There are some churches that say, well, you know, you have to be baptized and infant, sprinkled and, and submit to the Pope and, and all these miracles happen and you might be a saint one day. Other churches, on the other hand, say, well, don't follow the Bible, follow the Book of Mormon, and we've had miracles that demonstrate that. Other churches say, well, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit are all the exact same being, they're just different forms, and, and others say, no, you've got Father, Son, and Spirit that are separate, you've got some that say you've got to be baptized to be saved, some that say you don't, some that say, just all these various things, but they're all claiming they've had miracles. You know, wouldn't it stand to reason that if one of them really had the power of God, that they would stand head and shoulders above the rest? That there would be one that would stand out and be different, that could come in among all the others and say, that's trickery, here is the power of God. Wouldn't it stand to reason? I mean, that's what happened here. Philip was able to do that. When he had the true power of God, miraculous power, he came in and folks could tell the difference. Now, we recognize that the Bible today says that God wasn't going to use those miraculous gifts forever. And so we really don't expect to see somebody having that. But if somebody did, it ought to stand out above everybody else and not just be more of the same. People are duped because they can't see the real power of God. But when we look at the Bible, we see the real power of God. We see that folks didn't rely on talks, tricks, and testimony. They were able to take a man who everybody knew had been lame from his birth and heal him, and he would go walking and leaping and praising God. They were able to take somebody who had been blind from birth, and everybody knew it, and give him sight. They were able to take somebody that was dead, and everybody could tell, and bring him back to life. If somebody really had that power today, it ought to stand out. And so what we realize is that all these churches that are claiming all those things, unless they can stand out and really show the true power of God as demonstrated in the Bible, that we shouldn't be giving heed to that. We need to be sticking with the Bible and what it says. The third lesson that we learned from this, taking a little bit different tack now, is that it is possible for a Christian to become lost. It is possible for a Christian to lose the salvation that he gained through Jesus Christ. Simon is an example of this. Now, those who teach once saved, always saved, I'm just not sure how they can come to Simon the sorcerer and really get around this. Because I think Simon the sorcerer stands out as an example that just overcomes every argument that is put forth by those who teach that doctrine. You see, some would suggest when they teach once saved, always saved, that if a person was lost, what that meant was is they were never saved to begin with. And so they will try to say about Simon the sorcerer that, well, you know, he was never truly converted. And yet, in verse 12 and 13 of Acts chapter 8, it says, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. You see that Simon the sorcerer is placed on the same level as everybody else in Samaria. So here's our choices. Either Simon became a child of God along with everybody else in Samaria, or nobody became a child of God in Samaria along with Simon. You just can't get around it. They believed and were baptized. Simon believed and was baptized. It says, even Simon believed and was baptized. Some translations, I believe, say Simon also believed and was baptized. Simon became a child of God just like everybody else in Samaria. And yet, 
Peter is going to say to him, you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Now, another approach that some are going to take is that, well, he would, yes, he sinned, but the grace of Jesus Christ would cover him. And even though he sinned, he's going to be able to die and go to heaven anyway because he had believed at one point. But did you see what Peter said to him there? Verse 23, the gall of bitterness, the bondage of iniquity. He said, you are in bondage to iniquity. What did Paul say about that in Romans chapter 6 and verse 16? In Romans chapter 6 and verse 16, he said, Do you not know when you present yourselves to someone as slaves, that is, when you become in bondage to someone for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What does Paul say is the result of being in a bondage to iniquity? Not heaven. He doesn't say that you can be in bondage to iniquity, but because you're a Christian, it's okay, you're going to go on to heaven. He said, and remember, he's writing to Christians, that when you are in bondage to iniquity, when you have become a slave to sin, death is the result. Peter said to Simon, you are in bondage to iniquity. You're caught up in the gall of bitterness. This is not a person who became a Christian, but even though he sinned, he's now going to get to go to heaven. He's become in bondage to sin. The third thing that some would say is that, well, it's true. He became a Christian, but he's going to step in and out of the river of God's blessing. Anybody ever heard that illustration? You know, as a Christian, when we're doing what God says, we're in the river of God's blessing. But we can step out of that river. But by God's providence, He's always going to make sure that before we die, we get to come back to this river of God's blessing. And yet, what did Peter say to Simon? In verse 22, Repent of the wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible... The intention of your heart may be forgiven you. In other words, Peter says there's a possibility you won't be forgiven. Now, I believe, having said this, we're going to talk a little bit more about it tonight, that that possibility is not about God's willingness, but rather about Simon's intention. We'll talk more about that tonight, but the point being is that Peter says, if possible. In other words, it's possible, Simon, that you won't be forgiven. If he doesn't repent, he won't be forgiven. There's no stepping out of the blessing, but God by His providence is going to make me get back into the river of blessing before I die. What do we learn from this? That no matter which approach we want to take with the idea of once saved, always saved, Simon the sorcerer stands up as an example that says it just doesn't work that way. We've got to be a child of God and we've got to maintain our faithfulness to God. And I recognize that Christianity is a growth process. I recognize that we're going to make mistakes and I'm not saying that we won't. I'm just pointing out that we're not allowed to just do whatever we want and go into bondage to sin and believe that everything's going to be all right for us. It's possible for a Christian to become lost. And the fourth and final thing that we're going to note this morning is that baptism does not produce perfect Christians. I think there are many people that believe the gospel, they confess their faith in Christ, they commit to turning away from their sins, and they take that step of being baptized for the remission of their sins, just as Simon did, just as those in Samaria did. And they have the naive idea that going into the baptistry and coming up is suddenly now going to make everything easier. And that now all the temptations that we face that caused us to sin before we became Christians, those are going to be pretty well moved out of the way, and we're not going to have to deal with that anymore. But here's Simon, a child of God, a man who believed and was baptized and was following with Philip and was being amazed. And yet, even after becoming a child of God, this desire to impress, this desire to influence, 
led him to sin even still. Because you see, Christianity is a growth process. We don't come up out of the watery grave of baptism perfectly mature Christians. We don't come up out of the watery grave of baptism having overcome absolutely everything that we've ever dealt with. You see, in the denominational world, there are a lot of folks who teach the idea that we are born in sin and we just can't help but sin. But when you become a child of God, God comes in and takes over and is going to make you obey. Simon demonstrates that it just doesn't work that way. The issue of God taking over our lives and God controlling and God helping us overcome sin does not come because God miraculously enters our hearts and flips switches. It comes as we, through continued study and through continued prayer, submit ourselves to the will and the Word of God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Beginning at verse 5, it says, Now, for this very reason also, this is 2 Peter 1 and verse 5, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, in your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, excuse me, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's it say? It says we've got to be growing. But we've got to supply these things. We've got to be growing in these things. Maturity is something that happens over a period of time as we actively pursue maturity. You know, you realize, just as as human beings growing up physically, as long as somebody keeps feeding us, we're going to grow physically. But this seems to just happen all on its own. But spiritually, we've got to be working at it. Feeding on the Word of God. Studying it. Applying it. And so when we struggle, when we face the temptation, even when we submit just as Simon the sorcerer did, we shouldn't say, oh, I must have never become a Christian. We shouldn't say, oh, it's over. I can't do this. Why do I even bother? When we struggle, and whatever the struggle is after becoming a Christian, whether you're dealing with lust, with lying, with gossiping, with outbursts of anger, with drugs, with immorality, with stealing, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, that's... That's really, it's, it's natural. Baptism didn't take all that away. But we are to grow, just as Simon had to learn to grow. We are to study and submit to God's Word so that we can overcome. And not just, as we learned in the last point, not just give ourselves over to sin and think that it doesn't matter because Jesus died. You see the balance there. Here's the thing that we need to recognize. Baptism is not the end of our walk with the Lord. It's only the beginning. And we need to submit to His Word and grow in order to overcome sin. We can learn a lot of things from this surprising convert, Simon the Sorcerer. We recognize that the modern Pentecostal proofs are nothing new. We recognize the true power from God outshines the trickery and fakery of men. We recognize that Christians can, in fact, become lost. And we recognize that just because we were baptized didn't mean we became perfectly mature Christians. We need to grow. There are several other things that we can learn from Simon. We're going to be taking a look at that tonight, and I hope that you'll be back this evening. As we take a look at some issues about Christian living and about what we can learn from Simon. I hope this lesson benefited and encouraged you as we took a look at Simon the Sorcerer and learned some things about errors that are taught today that Simon the Sorcerer demonstrates the truth about.
If you enjoyed this lesson and appreciated its message, don't forget that there's a second part to this, Simon the Sorcerer Part 2. You can go to our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com and you can download and listen to that one or read it in outline format as well. In fact, if someone has given you this lesson on CD or audio tape, I encourage you, go to that website. Download any of the lessons that we have there, both in outline and audio format, and use them in whatever way you believe will honor and glorify God. If you have any questions about Simon the Sorcerer, about the Apostles, about Jesus, about His Word, or about any of the myriad of biblical and spiritual topics, please give us a call, 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through the website that I just mentioned. Again, it's www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.